If I were to describe the work of the Holy Spirit in the most basic or most foundational sense, I would put it the way I put it two weeks ago when I said, the Spirit gives life. That's what he does. Now, we're in a, in a series on revival. We spent about a dozen weeks digging down to essential truths that we must hold on to if we would see a genuine work of revival. We're not talking about revivalism, one, two, three, pray after me kind of stuff, but genuine spirit-sent revival. Then two weeks ago, we changed the metaphor from digging to reigning. Isaiah 44 and verse 3, the Lord says, I will pour water upon him who is thirsty and floods upon dry ground. We're talking about the out pouring of the Holy Spirit. And what we need to know is this foundational truth, the Spirit gives life. That's what we looked at two weeks ago. Today, I want to build on this foundational truth by simply looking more broadly at what the Holy Spirit does through and for His people, all right? And I think... Uh, it's really important to take some time to, to walk that out because when it comes to the Holy Spirit and revival, people so often fall prey to emotionalism, manipulation, and all kinds of weird hocus-pocus stuff. But like I said two weeks ago, revival, when it comes to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in revival, revival is, is mostly, simply, and profoundly, the intensification, the amplification of the regular, everyday, routine work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's just putting the pedal to the metal of what he normally does every day. To be sure, it is so massive, it's discernible when people say the Spirit is being poured out, but it is, again, an intensification of what he does every day. Now, that being the case, we need to walk out some of the things that he does, and then with, with each of these, you and I have a responsibility. You know at Restored Church that we, we hold to the truth of the doctrines of grace. We believe in Reformed theology, but sometimes, sadly, people who have a high view of the sovereignty of God have a very low view of the responsibility of man. And divine sovereignty does not nullify or negate human responsibility. We have to respond to the Holy Spirit if we would see all that God would have for us, for our lives personally and corporately. So what I'm going to do this morning, and I'm afraid this is, honestly, I've been afraid for two weeks this is going to sound like a lecture. Because I'm not walking through a text, I'm like 10 different points. I, actually, there's a, over 100 things the Holy Spirit does for us. And when I preached on this in 2014, I actually gave out a handout with 100 things he does. I don't think I tried to preach those points. Maybe I did. So if it feels like a lecture, and you need to use the restroom, just put your head down, put your hand up, and I'll give you a hall pass, okay? No, hopefully this will not be like a, a lecture. But I just want to just simply walk down 10 ministries of the Holy Spirit. You should have a handout. Do you have one? If not, put your hand up. We'll make sure you get one. Anybody need one? Go on. $10, 20, 20, 20, 30, 30. Okay. All right. Let's dive in. Again, we're talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The first thing we're going to see is that the Holy Spirit convicts us. 
Some of the most concentrated teaching Jesus ever had on the Holy Spirit is, on, is in John 14, 15, and 16. You remember those verses, those chapters? And he says, hey, I need to go away because, you know, the disciples are like, man, we, we don't want you to go away. Well, he's got to go away because he's going to go to the cross and he's going to rise again. He says, but it is for your advantage if I go away because I'm going to send another one who's like me but not me. And he goes on to call him the helper. Now, John 16, verse 8 says, and when he comes, he will convict the world of three things. What? Sin and righteousness and judgment. Our sin, our need for righteousness, and God's judgment. Very popular and palatable things, of course, right? Now, we know in order for someone to become a Christian, they need that ministry of conviction in their heart. Right? Like, if you're here, you need to know that, that you're a sinner. We all are. That you lack the righteousness that you need to be in a right standing with God, that there's coming judgment. It's absolutely necessary for a non-believer to experience this particular ministry of the Holy Spirit, am I right, in order to become a Christian. Jesus put it this way. Do you remember, and you guys are so quiet this morning. Would you talk to me? This is weird, all right? You're so quiet this morning. When he comes, he'll do three things. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Did not Jesus say, I didn't come to call the righteous to repentance, but who? Sinners. Now, he's being a little tongue-in-cheek, right? He's being sarcastic because there ain't no righteous in that sense. But he goes on to say, those who are whole have hope, no need of a physician. Or a dentist, perhaps, okay? So it has to happen for someone to become a Christian. What's more, though, that's a continuing ministry that we need in the heart of us believers, right? If you're a believer, you need the ministry of conviction, which I have to admit, when we're talking about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that does seem a little bit counterintuitive. Because if we're talking about the outpouring of the one who's called the helper, or as Jesus called the comforter, or the paraclete, the one who comes alongside of, uh, of us, if we're talking about the outpouring of the comforter, well, then the last thing I think I would feel is what? Conviction. But the Holy Spirit for a believer does not bring you to conviction to lead you back into condemnation because it says in Romans 8 and verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We just sang about that. So he doesn't bring us there to go to condemnation. He brings us there to bring us to greater transformation. You know how it is, don't you? You got comfortable with some sin, the way maybe something you did, something you were thinking, a way you were talking, and then all of a sudden, man, even though I've been doing this for a while, suddenly this doesn't feel so right. Well, who is that working? That's the Holy Spirit right there, right? It's a beautiful thing, too, because Jesus paid it all. We can confess it instead of religiously cover it we don't fix ourselves bootstraps religion we run to the one who fixes people through his death burial and resurrection and sometimes you know it's like people who have been dormant in their faith for a long time like they, they haven't they're not getting to the gym or they're not getting to the book you, you know the metaphor they're just, they're just lazy they're dormant in their faith and all of a sudden bam they take off and there's growth you're like, man, that just person just got saved. No, maybe what happened is they were a believer, but now they are responding to the gracious ministry of the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin 
and righteousness and judgment. So the question that I ask myself out of this, and I would ask you to ask yourself, put it in the first person, am I responding to conviction? Am I saying no to it and stiff-arming it, or am I receiving it? Because it ain't the most pleasant thing in the immediate, is it? Like, no, I'm wrong, or I'm sinning in this and that. No, but, but we must respond to that ministry of conviction. And by the way, a church that pursues revival then must talk about the kinds of things that the Holy Spirit would convict us of. Sin and righteousness and judgment. That's why this book must drive our preaching and nothing else. Number one, what does the Holy Spirit do? Convicts. I hope this is not too much of a lecture this morning. Number two, he regenerates. What in the world does that mean? To regenerate, it goes back very specifically to what I said last week, the Spirit gives life. But when you talk about regeneration, it means his giving life in conversion. The prophet Ezekiel, crazy dude, read the book of Ezekiel. The prophet Jeremiah foretold a time when God would send his son in the new covenant and the Spirit would rip out our hearts of stone that don't give a rip about the things of God and give us a heart of flesh, right? So we can see our sin and run to the Savior. That's exactly what Jesus Christ was talking about in John chapter 3. Nicodemus came to him by night and said, hey, how how can I be right with you, basically? And he says, you got to be born again. That's what he's talking about, the new birth. So then a church that wants revival must understand that the best gospel presentation The best gospel servant ain't nothing unless the Spirit moves, right? I mean, you know what it's like. I remember, you know, I've been to services, a worship gathering of sorts, and I bring a friend who's not a Christian, and and, and the dude up there is just preaching the gospel. My heart's beating. I'd get saved all over again. It's so powerful, right? You're just like, Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. And you look over at your friend, and he's just, oh, chat, chat, chat. When's this guy going to shut up, right? Because he's got a stony heart. A dead heart. But Titus chapter 3, verse 6 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saves us. By the washing of, here's the word, regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, a church that understands that probably will make a priority about preaching that God would regenerate dead hearts, right? In other words, we we really care and put some weight behind praying for, first, the ministry of conviction, but second of all, the ministry of regeneration. Now let's go to number three. The third ministry of the Holy Spirit is that we are baptized into Him or in Him. Have you ever had somebody ask you, this can be a very contentious thing in churches, have you ever been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Anybody, Anybody ever had that question, ever heard that concept? Okay, now, if you're a Christian, what is the answer 100% of the time? Yes, absolutely yes, that's, that's good. And, and, and to be specific, I don't understand the mechanics of this, but I understand this is the revelation of God. Jesus actually baptizes us in the Spirit. Because John the Baptist baptized people in water, but then he said, one is coming after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
Nowhere in the Bible is any, anywhere is anyone ever commanded to be baptized in the Spirit. Why? Why? Anybody want to say? Because it happens at conversion. That's when it happens. However, we are commanded to be filled by the Spirit. And because there's so much confusion on this matter of one baptism and many fill-ins, we're going to come back to that next week or two weeks after that. But this is just a, a beautiful thing. The ministry of being baptized in the Spirit, at convert, he didn't know what was going on, but it was going on, reminds us of just how beautiful the gospel is. The gospel is not just a removal of your sin, replaced by the righteousness of Christ. It's also a bestowal. It's a bestowal of the Spirit into your life. You are now in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in you. That points to indwelling. We'll get there in a moment. But what's even more is this, this, this being baptized by Jesus into the Spirit of God places us in one body with every other believer. Look at verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 12. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Now read this with me. What does it say? Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. We're all made to drink of one spirit. So, and I was really thinking about this. Just planet myself in 1 Corinthians 12 for a minute. When people say that one people group needs to be reconciled to another people group, whether it's age or geography or nationality or ethnicity or any number of groups, when people say that one people group needs to be reconciled to another people group in the body of Christ, they have just basically confessed they don't really understand what Jesus accomplished and what the Spirit of God already accomplished. Because does it not say here that we're all baptized into how many bodies? That's one people. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And if you were to go to Ephesians 6, he actually adds a whole lot to this. I'm sorry, Ephesians 5, and I'm just turning there really quick. You can follow along. Jesus went to the cross that he might reconcile us both, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What hostility? The hostility between us and God and God and us, and the hostility between people group and people group and people group and people group. He goes on to say in verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Verse 21, we are being joined together into a holy temple. Verse 22, we're also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So what I'm trying to say is a church pursuing revival will embrace and understand and relish in the fact that we are already reconciled to each other. Does that mean that there shouldn't be conversations? Not at all. Doesn't mean that there shouldn't confess real sin between believers, not at all. Doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about histories and things like that, not at all. But the point is, we don't do that to be reconciled, but because we have been reconciled. And if you don't believe that, if it's only potential, then you actually put your salvation in jeopardy because my, my reconciliation back to the Father is not potential, is it? Is it yours? It's actual. 
Now, I want to grow in what that looks like to walk as a child of God, but this is the truth. And listen, this is not a semantic word game, family. The question is, what is my starting point? What is my framework? It has to be God and the gospel. We have been baptized in him. So I just want to say to everyone here, if you're in Christ, you are in how many bodies? One body. All right, let me hasten. Number four. I'm sneaking two in this one, but it's still number four, okay? He seals and secures us. We've seen the Spirit convicts. He regenerates. We're baptized in him. Fourth of all, he seals and secures us. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were what? Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He's using some wax seal imagery right there. Like in the ancient world, uh, before they had the the U.S. Postal Service, they would just send letters and uh, there was no validation of it. So when someone finished that letter and folded that paper up in that parchment, they'd put a blob of wax on it, and then the writer of that letter would put the print of his ring on it, a seal, a signet imprint, as a validation, as a seal. That letter really belongs to me, the writer. We're living epistles. Does not Paul say that? And we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. But we ain't just sealed. We're secure. Verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We're the guarantee. God has given us his spirit as a down payment. You think God wants to lose a down payment? No, we're, we're sealed and we are secure in Christ if you're in Christ. Now, is, that, is the strength of your sealing, is the strength of your security in Christ based on how much you feel that? What do you think? Because sometimes I don't feel so sealed. I definitely don't feel so secure. How about you? Remember when I was 12 years old, we went to Bush Gardens or down in... Uh, visiting grandparents in Florida, went to Bush Gardens Amusement Park on one of those roller coasters that go, you know, upside down. I was reminded two weeks ago when our family went to Cedar Point, I, I can't do that anymore. Too many concussions to just get dizzy. But uh, we were getting on this roller coaster, starting to go, you know, going up, leaving where you, you would load up. And I was sure that the collar was not locked down. I just felt so much play. So I, I'm literally yelling all the way out of the load-up area, my collar's not locked, now my collar's not locked, my collar's not locked. Well, guess what? I'm standing here, I wouldn't be if my collar wasn't locked. I did not feel secure, but I was no less secure no matter how crazy I was yelling the way up those roller coaster tracks. And that's the way, that's the way it is with this. There's a lot of reasons we don't always feel so sealed and secured, Right? Probably one of the reasons is God wants us to walk by faith and not feeling or sight. And he wants us to, you know, develop our our, uh, trust muscle. But there is maybe one reason we can own that sometimes we don't feel so sealed and secure. Because if you go to Ephesians chapter 4, three chapters later, it says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit by whom you have been sealed unto the day of redemption. If you're not walking with the Lord, but confessing the Lord, right? If you're living fleshly and saying no to conviction, you are not going to feel the assurances of the Spirit. But don't you want to feel the assurance of the Spirit? Well, that leads to number five then. His fifth ministry is this. He makes us feel our adoption. 
Galatians chapter 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem those of us under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. And then it goes on to say, God has sent the spirit of a son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You could go to uh, Romans 8, where it says the spirit himself um, bears witness with our spirit, right, that we're children of God. That, that's the idea there. Now, he makes us, I say, feel, feel, let's not be afraid of that, guys, feel our adoptive status. This is an experiential thing, and I say that unapologetically, unabashedly. This is something we feel. It's experiential, but it's not mystical, okay? It's not like you wake up in the morning and you go check your phone and you got a text that says, hey, Mike, this is the Holy Spirit. I'm just texting you to let you know you really belong to the Father. Not something, you know, mystical like that. What it is, however, is you find yourself crying out to God. Not generically. I, trust me, when I got in trouble, I cried out to God a whole lot growing up, okay? But not generically, but you cry out to him in relationship as your father. Abba, father, do you see it? By the way, it's a, good, it's a good reason to train yourself to pray to God primarily as your Father. Not exclusively. There are some instances of people praying directly to the Lord Jesus in the Bible. Lord Jesus received my spirit. The martyr prayed. And there's nothing about praying directly to the Holy Spirit, but certainly there's, there's liberty to do that. I'm just saying the main pattern you have in Scripture is praying to the Father through Jesus by the Spirit. Jesus, did he not say, when, we, when they asked him how do we pray, what did he say? Our Father who art in heaven. It's a great privilege. No one, say, people in the Old Testament didn't call God Father. You, you, would, you would have been ridiculed for that. But he is our Father in Christ. But this is not something that you do intentionally. This is something that you do instinctively. Abba. It's, it's not, well, I just think I'll call him Father. No, crying out, Abba, Father. You find yourself instinctively going to God as your father, as a son or daughter. Does that, has that ever happened to you? Has that ever happened to you? Crying out to him as your father. And, and listen, it could actually be in a place of great turmoil, right? I mean, you're really going through it. And you find yourself crying out to God as your father. Even in that pain then, he's letting you know, you really do belong to me. You're coming to me right now. You wouldn't come if I wasn't in you. It's a beautiful thing. And by the way, of all the reading I've done on revival, one of the biggest things that they talk about in almost every real revival is people are acutely aware of their adoptive status. Like, they just realize, I really am a child of God. I really am a son of the Father. I'm a daughter of the Father. And it floors them so much. Sometimes people are like, I don't think I was ever a Christian before. I've never felt the love of God like this. Romans 5, 5, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. Now, whether that's the point of someone's conversion or not, we'll leave that in the secret counsel of God. But I think we ought to go after this, don't you? And maybe your prayer would be something like this. Father, I do not want to be a slave to feeling. I walk by faith. And I'm going to pursue you whether or not I feel you in the moment or in the season. But oh, I would like to feel you. 
Oh, I would like to know my sonship. Oh, I would like to feel my daughtership. I think we ought to go for that. Because the ministry of the Holy Spirit is for us feeling the Father's love for us as his children. Number six. I'm just going to fly here. I'm going to fly. you got to fly through lectures, okay? That's the way it works. Number six. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. You can see the verse from Romans 8. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. That's our weakness. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, some people say this groanings too deep for words are us speaking in tongues. Now, tongues is a real thing, but that's not what it's talking about here. For one, it's the Spirit praying, not us. And number two, groanings too deep for words. But my question for you is, when does this happen? When does the Spirit intercede for the saints according to the will of God? When does it happen? When we think about praying? When we plan on praying? Or when we actually pray? As we pray, he does it. Which means you won't experience this ministry unless you're doing what? Praying. Just really basic math right there, right? And by the way, that, it might mean that when you least know how to pray, or even are least motivated to pray, and yet stir yourself up to pray, that you might be experiencing more of the Spirit's intercession that will blow you away when he shows you all things in the future. He intercedes for us, number six. Number seven, he fills us. It says in Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, I have a whole, like I said, I got a whole message coming up on this. But let me just begin to lay a little bit of the framework. I'm not trying to be too technical, but as I've said several times, this is a lecture after all this morning. Four things about Ephesians 6.18. Number one, it is in the imperative mood. What does that mean? This is a command. Be filled. Not, if you feel like it, consider being filled. No, be filled. It's a command, number one. Number two, it's in the plural form, which means this is a command for all of us. Every believer here, you are commanded to be filled by the Holy Spirit. But number three, it is in the passive voice, meaning we don't fill ourselves, God fills us. He's the agent that acts upon us. We have a responsibility, but at the end of the day, he does the filling. We're entirely dependent on him. And number four, this is in the present tense, which means it's not a one-and-done, crazy deal, boom. No, this is a lifelong thing, a lifelong pursuit. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to walk the text where we see this in the book of Acts because we'll do that in a couple of weeks, but let me tell you what the results are. There is, first of all, when somebody is filled with the Spirit, there is a boldness to declare the gospel. Not the boldness to declare your job. Not the boldness to declare your political party. Not the boldness to declare any number of things, your favorite team. It's the boldness to declare the gospel. That's what you'll find. Boldness to declare the gospel, even at cost. Number two, there is joy in following Christ, even in difficulties. Joy. We'll see that. And then finally, there is godliness. 
Doesn't it say in Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, which is where it is debauchery, but filled with the Spirit. And we'll see that often a man will be called a person of faith and godliness in the Spirit. They're all, they're all put together. So again, I'm just, I'm rushing through this, but as we dive into this, are you, am I seeking to be filled by the Spirit as evidence by boldness to declare the gospel, joy in the Lord, and the pursuit of godliness? Number eight, gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Y'all with me? Guys, just look like you've been through a wind tunnel. I I get it. I'm sorry. (laughs) You're so gracious. I'm just trying to lay out a framework for stuff we're going to unpack in a few weeks. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Every single believer here, without exception, without exception, has gifts for the good of the body. Doesn't matter who you are, how old you are, whatever. Everybody does. Sometimes it's an ability you had pre-conversion that's now just hopped up, right, and harnessed by the Spirit. And other times it's something that you never dreamed you would do. But the Spirit infuses you with a gift for the good of the body. But that is the point. It is for the good of the body, not for the glory of ourselves. It is yielded and flexed in serving others. So then how do you discover your gifts? Do you take a survey? Do you take a test? Do you take some kind of analysis? I, I, I mean, I can't imagine the church at, the first church of Jerusalem saying, this Sunday is our spiritual gifts uh, test Sunday. So I want you to fill this thing out, and we'll figure out what you're good at, and then we'll plug you into it. Now, it's not bad to read about that sort of thing, but you know biblically how a person's gifts are discerned? Anybody want to answer that one? Say it loud. Other people. That's right in that right direction. Yes. No, it is. It's just stepping up in the middle of the church and saying, where can I serve? The Scripture says a man's gifts will make a way for him. A woman's gifts will make a way for her. So you see a need, you step up, I'm not so hot at that. Oh, you're really good at that. It's, it's really that simple. So the question is, are you stepping up to opportunities here? In revival, people step up. And that famous or infamous sermon from way back in the beginning when this room looked nothing like this, there are poopers before platforms. That you're willing to serve behind the scenes for the good of God's people. Number nine, the Spirit grows fruit. I'm not even going to go through Galatians 5 because this this is going to be another message in this series. But you will find in Galatians chapter 5, you have the works of the flesh, right? And the fruit of the Spirit. And when I've just been kind of in that, and I've been kind of drawing a line between a particular work of the flesh and a particular fruit of the Spirit. Because I get caught in that continuum. Sometimes I'm... it's not patient, it's outbursts of anger, right? The greatest test of the Spirit being operative in someone's life is not their gifting. It is always their character. In fact, gifting without character is a Molotov cocktail. 
aren't we tired of seeing things happen? But let's take heed ourselves, right? Lest we also fall. Again, we're going we're gonna to unpack that. We're going to unpack this. But maybe the application question I would have before I go into the final point is this. Would you say, would you, would you spend some time in Galatians 5 this week asking yourself, are the works of the flesh more prominent in my life or is the fruit of the Spirit? Just, just, you, just you alone. Just square up with that. And, and just ask the Lord to help you really, really address that. Because in revival, the fruit of the Spirit becomes so lush and lavish, the, the branches just sag with fruit as the Spirit moves in fresh ways. Number 10, the Spirit leads. The Spirit leads. Romans 8, 14, for all who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. Now, this leading has nothing to do with mystical God-told-me stuff, okay? Can I just put that out there? I can't tell you, mm, it gets me a little fired up. When people tell me God told them to do something, when the Word of God contradicts them. Because which member of the Trinity, by the way, gave the Word of God? The Spirit of God. So what I'm trying to t say to that person is you're telling me the Spirit of God who gave this told you something in contradiction to what he gave in the inspired Word of God. That's not how it works. This is not, you know, sometimes people say, well, listen, you know, the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, and he did, right? Or the Spirit led, was it Philip to testify to the Ethiopian eunuch in that chariot, right? Remember that? Or, for instance, the Spirit forbid Paul to go into Bithynia. So, yeah, the Spirit leads in weird kind of ways. Well, I would say this. The Spirit can do anything, no doubt about it. And we need to be open to that. But we don't have the liberty to fill in the blanks of Scripture where the Scripture doesn't tell us how the Spirit led, right? So you always move from clear to cloudy, not cloudy to clear. As I said, of course the Spirit moves in various ways. But when we're talking about being led by the Spirit, there are four biblical principles. So if you got a lecture, you got a lecture within a lecture. I'm going to close right here. First of all, when you want to, if you want to say, I want to be led by the Spirit, okay? First of all, open your Bible, okay? You have the principle of obedience. What God commands, we must obey. It's just that simple, right? What He commands, we must obey. So we've got to know the Word. And again, the Spirit gave us the Word of God. Number two, the principle of wisdom, where there is no command, because there's a lot of stuff that we face in life that you can't look up a verse, right? You can't go to a specific book and say, well, here's the answer right here, right? That's not how it works. So he's given us then the principle of wisdom where there is no command. He's given you the ability to apply wisdom. And does not the book of Proverbs talk a whole lot about wisdom, right? So there's the principle of obedience, what God commands, we must obey. The principle of wisdom, what he doesn't command, we apply wisdom. Number three, there's the principle of freedom. Where there is no command, God gives us freedom and responsibility to choose. The principle of freedom. And then finally, the principle of trust. When we follow those guidelines, obedience, wisdom, freedom, we then at the end of the day, instead of becoming nasal gazers, Trust the sovereign God to work out all the details. That he'll work it out. 
I don't have to constantly do the rearview mirror thing. Did I make the right decision? Did I make the right decision? Did I make the right decision? No, no, no. Instead of paralysis of over-analysis and the ever-subjective chasing, what's the Spirit telling you? What's the Spirit telling you? We, 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 we are led by being rooted in biblical principles. Obedience, wisdom, freedom, and trust. And you know that all of this boils down to trust and obey. That sounds so ho-hum. I want something crazy for revival. Maybe the highway to revival is paved by a ho-hum, trust and obey. We have responsibilities, family. We really do. In every single one of these 10 ministries of the Holy Spirit, we have a responsibility. Without exception, we have a responsibility. And that's why it's been said that revival, whether personally or corporately, will cost you. It's going to cost us if we really want revival. It will cost you time. It will cost you face. It will cost you many things. But isn't the payoff worth it? Of seeing God really use you and God really used this church. And again, we, we want these big picture things, but big pictures are painted by small dots. It happens in little ways. Some of you know all too well, because I'm heavy on hunting and sports illustrations, that I play on several baseball teams in the summer. Older guys, middle-aged guys, younger guys, all that. I love it. I, I love the game. It's an outlet for me. Um, I love the camaraderie, hanging out with, with, with my brothers. Uh, it's, it's fun, and there, there's many great gospel opportunities in that. I also am slightly competitive. And I, I know you didn't know that, right? I, I know you had no idea that I had this competitive streak in me. And there's nothing like mm, taking a guy who's half your age and hitting him, hit, hitting him deep. But that competitive thing, it causes me sometimes when I'm out there to lose perspective. It does. I, I'm no longer rooted. And speaking of a younger guy throwing a fastball, it was a couple weeks ago, I should have drilled this thing to right center. I'm still mad about it. I popped it up in a key time. And I'm three steps out of the box. I pull my helmet off, and I slam it on the ground, and it just goes right in the dugout. Clackety, clack, clack, clack. And you know, the minute I did it, I'm like, what in the world did I just do? And then, there's another Christian brother on the team. I hear this voice. It's the voice of God, I'm telling you. That's not you, Mike. And I'm like, yeah, no kidding, but apparently it is. <laughs> so, I go back to the dugout, and I say, hey, I I'm sorry, guys. Oh, don't worry, you can't get hit every time. I said, no, 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 I'm not talking about that. I'm sorry for throwing my helmet like that. And everyone just kind of looked at me with a blank face. Um... It really convicted me, and it, it, I became convinced that I, I have to have a more proactive approach when I go to the ball field, because I'm going to pop out again, a lot, of, a lot of times again, on a fastball that I should smack. So I, this is, I'm just thinking about this one night. You know, you wake up in the middle of the night thinking about stuff, and I was thinking about this, and uh, you can say this is one of those, you know, mystical lead, but I just, it just came to my heart that I need, as part of my warm-ups, I got an older, small Bible, I just need to, at the end of the, Bible, end of the dugout, not trying to make a big deal or anything like that, 
just open up the scripture, read a few scriptures, and spend a few minutes in prayer. I'm like, okay, I'll do that. And, you know, I've, I've been doing that, and I, I just need right out there, I need, I can, I can be so fleshly, I need to be out there, out there, reminded that, that I'm in Christ, that I represent him, and all the rest. And, you know, and then, this is how it works, the first three games after I did that, I, I was just killing the ball. Oh, thank you, Lord. You're blessing me for this obedience. Well, then the next game, I wasn't being blessed. It was a terrible game. And that's when the test came, right? And by the grace of God, I, I somewhat passed that test. Not in my heart, but at least outwardly, and maybe that's a start. And what's really cool is, again, I don't really try and make a big deal of it. Hardly anybody sees it. But the guy who was the voice of God in that moment, that's not you, Mike. He saw me doing it, and now we start. Now we're reading a scripture together at the end of the, end of the dugout four game, having a quick prayer. It's like a three- or four-minute thing, no big deal. But, you know, it's just, it's just a little step, right? Because the Spirit was moving in my heart, convicting me, um, saying, man, you need to be filled. That's very carnal. Um, you need to bear fruit. You need to be led by me, even on the doggone diamond. And, and I need to take a lot more steps, okay? Like, I still want to throw the helmet when I get out, let me tell you. But in closing, I want to ask you, are there any little steps like that you need to take? Is there anything the Spirit said in any one of these ten areas? Because sometimes we can, we can take, again, a shotgun message like this, full of buckshot, and just be like, Oh, there's so much here. What do I do? Do the one thing the Spirit's pricking you about right now. Just do that. Just do that. Because revival, we want this big picture, but a big picture consists of a bunch of little points. And if you can step up there in faith, not needing to cover anything, but confess it because Jesus paid it all, and walk by the power of the Spirit in obedience, I'm telling you, the Lord will build a beautiful picture that maybe will be emblazoned by this headline, Revival. This is the word of God.